Starting this week, um, God has put it on my heart um, that we will be studying out of one book of the Bible for the next number of months. And um, as crazy as it sounds, it's going to be the, the book of First John, which is just five chapters long. And I honestly, when I first started thinking about it, I was like, Lord, there's maybe three or four sermons I could pull out of this. And the Lord said, no, you're going to do this probably through the end of October. Maybe uh, maybe all the way up till Advent, till Christmas time. So it's like, okay. Um, and I'm excited about it. I really, I, I told somebody the other night um, when we were here gathered for prayer Friday night um, that one of the one of the confidences I have that that the ministry of this church is continuing is that God gave me months and months and months worth of sermons. Obviously, he wouldn't have given them to me if it wasn't going to be a place for us to worship in. So I give God praise and I'm excited about what's going to be happening. We are going to be looking at the first, I mean, the book called First John. Now, before we get into actually reading this, because only today we're today, we're only going to look at the verses that I just read to the kids, the very first four verses of chapter one. But before we get into this, I want to give you just a tiny little bit of background so that you understand what's going on. So first of all, return in first John to chapter Five. First John chapter five, verse 13. First John chapter five, verse 13. John said to the people receiving this letter, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This particular piece of literature, this epistle, this book, this piece of writing, doesn't fit into a regular category when scholars try to study it. And, you know, it's not, in the sense that if it was a letter, it should say at the beginning, Hi, this is me, and I'm writing to you, and this is what I'm going to say. But he doesn't do that in this. And so there's a question, well, who wrote it and to whom was he writing it? And is it indeed a letter or what is it? Well, the first thing I wanted to get out of the way was this was being written to Christians. Okay, this was not being written as an evangelistic tool trying to win non-believers to the faith. Right here, chapter 5, verse 13, the writer of this book, of this piece of literature said, I'm writing this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So we know without question that the audience for this writing was Christians, which then says, any Christian will benefit from reading this section of, 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 the, of the word. That's number one. Number two, who, in the de- who indeed wrote this? I cannot definitively tell you who wrote it because they didn't put their name in this passage. However, I can tell you that from the early... Well, let me, let me back it up. Scholars have dated this to the year 95. So that it was written around the year 95 AD. So Jesus had been dead around 50 years. And the church had been in existence about 50 years. 
So whoever wrote this was writing to Christians who were worshiping and being part of a church that was less than a hundred years old, that was just five decades old. It was very possible that the people he was writing to had actually heard Jesus while Jesus was walking on the earth because it was less than 50 years or around 50 years um, following Christ's death. So it was written to Christians. It was written in the year 95. Who wrote it? Scholars cannot definitively say because the person that wrote it did not put their name down. They have clues to look at Some of the clues that they have, if you were to make comparison between the Gospel of John and this letter, it sounds like it's being written by exactly the same person. So scholars say, well, we're pretty sure that it's John. If you look at the history of the church, this was written right around the year 95. It would have taken 5 to 10 to 15 years for it to start spreading. And over the course of time as it became part of the scripture, part of the canon, then more and more Christians would learn about this. Well, by the year 325, which was when we read the Nicene Creed was from, this was considered part of the Holy Scripture. So between the year 95 and the year 325, the church had established that this was scripture. And from that time, from the earliest parts of that time, the earliest parts of the of the, the second century, all the way through to the 1800s, every churchman, every scholar, every theologian would have told you this was written by the by the apostle known as John, the son of Zebedee. So, for the better part of 1500 years to 1800 years, Christianity believed this was written by the disciple who 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 was known as the beloved disciple, the one who rested his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper, the one who at the end of the Gospel of of John, Peter said, I mean, Jesus said to Peter, if I want this guy to live until I return, what's that to you? That's what scholars would have told you all the way up until the 1800s. And then we got smart. And now we don't think that it's John. I can tell you, as I read, I read about 10 different commentaries this week. And as I read, every single every single scholar was one or the other. It's John. It's John. It's John. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not quite sure. And I thought, well, I'll at least read the Beacon Bible Commentary, which is the one that the Church of the Nazarene published back in the 60s. And I read the new Beacon Bible Commentary, which was the one that published by the Church of the Nazarene just in the recent 10 years ago. And I read both of those. And the one from the 60s said, it's John. And the one from just 10 years ago went, well, we're not quite sure. And I was like, ah! So the answer is, we don't know. But most of Christianity, for most of the time Christianity has been in existence, believed that it was the, God, the disciple known as John, the son of Zebedee. And quite frankly, that's what I believe. But who am I? I'm just this little pastor up in Two Rivers, Alaska. So bottom line is, we call it the first epistle of John, the first letter of John. We are going to say John whether you believe that it was John or not, we're just going to say John for, for ease of conversation. So we've got this thing called John, and it is written by John, and it was written in the year 95, and it was written to people who believe in the name of the Son of God, Christians. So what is this all about? 
Well, if you go back in history to that time, the early part of the church, by the year 100, there was already problems in the Christian faith. For those of you who have studied it, you, you will understand and know that there was a philosophy that came out of Greek culture, which at that time, Greek culture had been prevalent up until the Roman Empire, and the Greek culture actually influenced the Roman Empire. And so all of the natural world, all of just regular Christian, not Christians, all of, of just regular people, not scholarly Christian people, they believed in this dualism between good and evil. Okay? If, if you were to look at our own culture today, you would see, not in true Christian circles, but you would see just in the general public, this discussion between the power of God and the power of the devil being at war with each other. How many of you people have seen an image on the internet or wherever else of the earth with Jesus and the devil in an arm wrestling over the earth? Have you ever seen? It's on the internet if you look for it. Years ago, there was a Broadway play called God's Favorite. It was based on the book of Job. And the narrator for this play was the devil. And in this play, this narrator says in the very first parts of the, uh, of the, of the thing, telling the story to the audience... It was really interesting because God was having court and all of the angels of God came to the court and they were all talking and all of a sudden the devil showed up and he was trying to cause havoc and cause problems. And it was so interesting to see these two deities fighting over this one guy. And God, when I heard, because I saw the show, I saw it being performed live. And when I saw the show and when I heard that line, I thought, oh my word. Two deities fighting over a guy? Satan is not a deity. He's a fallen angel. But you see, in culture, outside of the church, they have this perception of God fighting the devil. And literally, they're on the equal plane. It's good versus evil. And see, that goes all the way back thousands of years to the time of the ancient Greeks who believed that everything spiritual was good and everything physical was evil. Now, bring into this culture, this worldview, that everything spiritual is good and everything physical is evil, this constant fight between good and evil, and now we have this incredible, very, very difficult to understand and accept theological doctrine that is being taught for the last 40 to 50 years from the death of Christ to the time when this book was written that God the Father has a begotten Son begotten, not made who by the Holy Spirit of God conceived through the Virgin Mary became man So now we have this Christian theology that states good 
and evil become one? Because see, in their mind, in that culture's mind, the act of procreation was a vile, evil thing. Because material is always evil. Physical is always evil. So how can you conceive, physically conceive a baby and have it be good? Spiritually good. See, there's this... And so the the theology that started to come out during this time was that the almighty good known as God could never intersect with the almighty bad, which is material. So God had to create a lesser being who was not quite as God as God. And that lesser being could then interact with the physical because that lesser being wasn't God. It was just like God. It was less than, but not quite dark, but not quite all light. It was an in-between entity. And this was known as docetism. Docetism was a Christian, quote-unquote, teaching in the era that we're looking at that Jesus could not have been Fully God and fully man. Because that doesn't work. You can't have. Full God and full man joined. So in order to let our world view of good versus evil. And actually evil and good being on the same plane. We cannot accept that this God man theology worked. So what they taught was. Jesus was a shell who inhabited, who the Holy Spirit of God inhabited. Does that make sense? I mean, it doesn't make sense, but I mean, so there's this idea that this Christ entity, right? This Christ entity looked like a human being, but really wasn't a human being. He was able to be touched. He was able to be heard. He was able to be seen. But he wasn't really a man. He was something different. That God had created to be able to have the God touch with the material. Because this good cannot connect with the evil. So we have to have this intermediary between. Well, that was pretty bad teaching. And it was kind of scary. Because it goes against everything of what the gospel is saying. But that's what a lot of Christians were beginning to teach. In addition to that, now you have this, this idea that there's this lesser being who's housed to look like it's a human being, but not quite a human being, but it looks like a human being. Now there's a guy named Serinthus, Serinthus, C-E-R-I-N-T-H-U-S, Serinthus, who is a contemporary with the disciple John back in the 90s, who is a Christian, quote-unquote, a Christian theologian who owns an ideas, I mean, holds to the idea of this docetism. And he taught, well, look, I can show you in the scriptures where this is all true. 
Because if you will read in the Gospel of John, you will see that Jesus comes down to the River Jordan when John the Baptist is baptizing. And Jesus steps into the water and John says, Who am I to baptize you? I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. And Jesus says, let's do this because it's the right thing. And so John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And when Jesus comes out of the water, what happens? What does the scripture tell us happens? Tell me, what do you remember from that story? What? The Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove and? But what, what did the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove do? It what? It landed on Jesus. It came upon him. So Serinthus said, we can't have a God living in a physical form because good can't connect with evil. So what this is, is there was a real man named Jesus who was conceived by his father Joseph and his mother Mary coming together in a natural conception And he was born, and then in his 30th year, the Spirit of God comes on him and infills him. And for those three years of his ministry, he then controls this Jesus. And then at the end, Pilate condemns Jesus to death. And so it says on in the scriptures, it says, and Jesus gave up the ghost and died. So Serinthus taught that this idea of docetism, where the God cannot connect with the physical, therefore there was a man who was physical, who was Jesus, the God of the, of, of, of all gods sent the Spirit of God to inhabit this shell known as Jesus for three years and just before he was killed took him away. So the physical Jesus died, but not the Christ. The story goes, if you read ancient writings, I believe it was Irenaeus that wrote it. It was either Irenaeus or Eusebius wrote this. That John the disciple, the one who wrote this letter, was in a Roman bathhouse in Ephesus at the same time that Serinthus was at that same bathhouse. And when John recognized that he was in the same bathhouse with Serinthus, he got up out of the water and got dressed and left immediately. And somebody asked him why. He said, what's wrong with you? You can't have fellowship with him? He said, it has nothing to do with fellowship. I do not want to be in the same building with that man because God is going to bring the roof down on him. Because he is teaching heresy. And I don't want to be around when that happens. And so many scholars will tell you that John wrote this letter to the Christians that he was the pastor over as a way of communicating to them true theology. This is what true Christians believe. This is what you need to understand about what it means to be a Christian. Do not listen to these false teachers that are corrupting the gospel. It's been less than 50 years. I saw it with my own eyes. I heard it with my own ears. I touched him. 
I rested my head on his chest on his last night. And I am telling you, this word of God, this logos, brings eternal life. And the enemy of our souls, who is not equal with him, is trying to distort the truth to keep you from having this eternal life. Because if he can cause you to fall away from the truth, then you will become an apostate. And you will fall away from what is the truth. And you will no longer have access to God because you will no longer be living righteously. And the danger that's there is that there were true Christians, people who truly believed and followed the teachings of Jesus Christ as taught to them by Paul, Apollos, Peter, and John. And all of these folks were hearing these other teachers who were making sense. Can you imagine sitting in a church service where Serenthus had been invited to preach? Well, he knows because he studied. Obviously, he has a better understanding than I do. I, I guess I must have misunderstood the whole time. I never thought about that. Wow. Christ came on to the physical Jesus at the time of his baptism and then stayed with him through all of those years of ministry. Because, yeah, we never heard anything about miracles during the time that he was a child or young adult. All we ever hear about are the miraculous te- and the miraculous power and, and the, the, the incredible wisdom and the godly teaching only in those three years of his life. And then it says right there, and he gave up the ghost. Man, that makes sense. That makes sense. And now you've got Mary Jones walking out of the church service after Serenthus preaches the heresy and goes home thinking, wow, I must have had it wrong that whole time, but that makes so much sense. And now she's lost her faith. Because she's no longer believing in a son of God, the only begotten of the Father, conceived by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. You see how, how dangerous it is? If you don't know for yourselves what the scripture says. And, and back then, they, at the time that John wrote this, they didn't have a Bible that they held up and said, this is what it says. They had the Old Testament scriptures, but they didn't have the New Testament scriptures in one form by that year. Because remember, it took until the year 300 for them to actually have a solid, this is what the Bible is. So there's still all of this going around. And remember, if you look at the book of Corinthians, Aquila and Priscilla had to instruct Apollos because he hadn't been given full understanding of the gospel. And so they who learned from Paul were able to share with Apollos, who then became fuller in his understanding of the gospel, and they became a very powerful and effective teacher. But he was a powerful and effective teacher before he met Aquila and Priscilla. But he was teaching a limited gospel because he didn't have the full story. So you see, this this danger was out there in the very foundational and formation years of the church to have right teaching and to combat against false teaching and heresy. Now, 
We have the benefit today. I could go downstairs in my office and I could take off the shelf no less than 24 different translations of God's Word. Now I'm a pastor. It's my job to have a library. I understand that. But I literally could hand out 24 different translations of the Word of God. But it's my job as a pastor to read those regularly and to know what they say. My job to teach you regularly so that you know what it says through me. But did you know that you have a responsibility in this too? I can show you in the book of Acts where Paul preaches to a group of people known as the Bereans. And the writer of the book of Acts, Luke, says that they were held in high esteem. Why? Because after Paul, the Apostle Paul, the man who wrote almost all of the New Testament, after he preached to them, they went home and they searched the scriptures to make sure that what Paul said was correct and accurate according to the scriptures. And they were held in high esteem. Now, let's be honest. Don't raise your hand. How many of you do that to me? How many? I know Jesse does. He does it in the middle of my sermon. He sends me text messages in the middle of my sermon. <laughs> you might want to mention this, Pastor. That's why I put it on airplane mode so I don't get those annoying distractions. But the reality is, honestly, folks, how many of you go home and check me? Or do you just take what I say verbatim and go, yeah, Pastor, he knows. He's got a master's degree. The reality is, folks, I'm a human being. And it's very possible that I could get it wrong. And you have a responsibility before God to know the word of God. And you have, you're living in the time when you have it available to you in all forms. You don't want to read it, listen to it. You don't want to listen to it, watch it on a video. You can even go on YouTube and they'll have the, the scriptures on video. You can listen to preachers ad nauseum on Channel 4 or on KGNP, the, the radio station. So don't tell me you can't get into the Word of God to find out whether or not what I'm saying is true. The issue for you is whether or not you're willing to take the time to do it. Whether you're willing to be responsible enough to do it. But you're going to see over the coming weeks as we get into this book how dangerous it is if you don't know the word of God. And how, how easy it would be for the enemy. To cause you to fall away from the faith. And that's what I wanted to tell you this morning. The very first four verses. We're going to read them as we close. The four, first four verses. That which was from the beginning. Which we have heard. Which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And some, some translations will say, so that your joy may be complete. And that's because the way it's written in the Greek, they can't discern one way or the other for sure. The Word of God 
to us for this morning is that God is real. He can be sensed. For all intents and purposes, he can be tasted, he can be touched, he can be heard, he can be experienced. He makes himself known to you through his word and through the interaction of the Holy Spirit with you. It is your job to discern it. It is your job to learn who this God is. It is your job to educate yourself. It is not my job to spoon feed you. If you're a brand new baby Christian, that's one thing. But if you've known the Lord for years and years and years, and you're still waiting for me to give you a little spoonful of pablum every week, we got a problem. So my encouragement to you is this week, read through the five chapters of the first book of John and start chewing on it for yourself. We will be with it for the next 13 weeks or so. And see where God takes us. I'm excited about it. I'm, I'm very, very excited about it. But at the same time, if all I'm doing is giving you food and you go, mm, 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 that was nice. And you walk away. Nothing's going to happen. There will be no growth. There will be no change. So let's pray.